One, we wanted to focus on diversity, equity, inclusion in the EMS workforce. And then also we wanted to focus on our delivery of care to patients and how uh, EMS care delivery may differ based on a patient's background or ethnicity, race, etc. This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. Hello and welcome to another edition of EMS One Stop. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and uh, I've got an amazing bunch of uh, researchers with me today. And we're going to talk about, amongst other things, disparities in emergency medical services care delivery and the review that they've done. Um, But because I have such an impressive set of guests, I'm going to ask you all to introduce yourselves. And so uh, who's going to go first? I can go first. So my name is Anjani Joyner. I am an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Duke University and uh, serve as the medical director for Durham County EMS in Durham, North Carolina. I can go next. I'm Dr. Amir Hamid. I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Chicago Medicine, and I am the associate EMS medical director for Chicago South EMS. And I'm Andra Farkas. I'm an emergency physician at the University of Colorado on the Anschutz campus in Aurora, Colorado, and I do various EMS activities here. And I'm Jordan Rudman. I'm a former EMT and current emergency medicine resident at the Harvard Emergency Medicine Residency at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. So welcome. You are an esteemed uh, bunch of, uh, of folk, and I'm delighted to have you along. So you and the person that's missing from here, amongst others, of course, is uh, Dr. Remley Crow, um, who has been kind of one of the, the the drivers for the research that you've been doing. And so we must shout out to Remley. She's on a plane somewhere now, so uh, eventually, when she lands, you'll hear uh, hear us chit chat. But let's talk about the research. And so start us off, uh, uh, Anthony. And uh, what have you guys been up to? So this research stemmed from our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee uh, from the National Association of EMS Physicians. And we created a subcommittee focused on research because we recognize this as a gap in EMS um, in general. And one of the things that we kind of decided on um, were that there were two paths. So one, we wanted to focus on diversity, equity, inclusion in the EMS workforce. And then also we wanted to focus on our delivery of care to patients and how uh, EMS care delivery may differ based on a patient's background or ethnicity, race, et cetera. So on the uh, diversity, equity and inclusion, I've read the abstract and uh, let me just kind of read the background for everybody that's uh, that's listening, that uh, emergency medical services often serve as the first medical contact for ill and injured patients, representing a critical access point to the healthcare delivery continuum. While a growing body of literature suggests inequities in care within hospitals and emergency departments, limited research has comprehensively explored disparities related to patient demographic characteristics in pre-hospital care. That's the background. And so what did you find through the research you've done, dare I say, so far? Okay, so basically what we did with this paper is we did a scoping literature review and looked at over 10,000 abstracts to try to narrow down um, what research there was out there 
regarding disparities in care delivery. And we decided to do a full spectrum of EMS care. So starting from EMS access, are there disparities in folks knowing to call 911 for certain things, all the way through to delivery to the emergency department. So um, anywhere from EMS access, bystander care provided before EMS got there, whether or not it was dispatch guided, EMS response times and transport times, as well as EMS provider diagnosis and management of certain clinical things that were happening. And we found basically 145 papers out of those 10,000 abstracts that either specifically looked at this or had enough of a discussion about disparities in care within their papers for us to feel like they needed to be included. So you kind of hit on a number of almost categories there in, uh, in what you just described there. So what did you find? Out of those 145 full text articles, a majority of them focused on race or ethnicity, um, about 61. 25 of them focused on sex and gender. Um, about 58 page papers, so about 60, investigated both of them, both race, ethnicity, and sex gender, and only one investigated sexual orientation. So there was a lot of data lacking in that category. Um, there were a couple of clinical conditions that popped up very frequently, cardiac arrest, ACS, and stroke, um, and then other clinical conditions popped up infrequently, and that's discussed a little bit in our article as well. Um, so it was about split down the middle as far as the different phases of care, um, with some focusing on the access to EMS, some focusing on pre-arrival, some focusing on diagnosis or treatment, and then the last chunk focusing on um, EMS response and transport decisions by our EMS providers in the pre-hospital setting. Um, and there were a couple of themes that came out of it. Um, and I think overall, what our overall um, thoughts after looking at the plethora of data that was um, put in front of us was that you see one EMS system and you've only seen one EMS system. Um, so there were a lot of papers that showed a disparity. Um, there were some papers that showed no disparity and there were some that showed disparity in a surprising way that swung the you know opposite way of what we were expecting. Um, however, you know, we've compiled that data and put it into the article. Um, so it's easy to read. Um, there's a couple of graphs, um, or, or charts that are available so that you can see which, which, um, articles had disparities presented and which had none. Um, but really I think the takeaway, uh, from the article overall is that we as, um, EMS medical directors or, um, personnel that are in charge of QAQI should really be looking into our own system to see if health disparities exist there. Um, because again, if you see one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. I spend much time briefing journalists and the you've seen and actually listening out there, we can all join in together now. Once you've seen one EMS system, you have truly seen one EMS system. Fun fact, there are just under 15,000 registered EMS systems in the United States, whether it's fire, private, hospital, for-profit, not-for-profit, 501c3, third-party service, etc. And so I agree. We all agree with you because we all have subtle nuances we all have our differences and uh, there's nothing the same this this ain't the national health service uh, from for, for the uk viewers but uh, um sort of taking it back to the beginning though you mentioned you know barriers to entry into you know the ems system and so sort of just trying to sort of take it through a logical process what what were the the key takeaways from that particularly particular sort of item if you like 
So there were a couple of barriers based on which category of population you were looking, I guess. So for women, for example, a lot of studies found that while women were quicker to recognize signs and symptoms of things like um, ACS or stroke, they took longer to make the decision to actually call 911. There were also barriers based on race and ethnicity, specifically um, with the Hispanic population or immigrant population, having concerns about uh, immigration services being involved or about even ac- uh, costing cost of access. Uh, we saw that uh, concern a lot with our African-American and our Hispanic populations on the studies that looked at this. Well, actually, let me jump straight back in there because uh, I've, I've been there and lived the Latino population issue in that I used to be in Richmond, Virginia, and every summer season I had an MPH intern. And of course, what do ambulance systems have? They have lots of data and lots of questions. And so we can start to research things. And we realized that there was a circle of non-calling in our city, the south of our city, which is predominantly a, a Latino area. And exactly what you just said, that uh, the population there assumed that by dialing 911, that meant ICE. And therefore, there was a a reluctancy to call. And so we got into partnership um, with the League of Latin American Cities. Uh, We worked very closely with the community leaders. Um, We actually created the Latino EMS and police academies in order to bring people in to realize that we're there to be an asset and a resource. And this was something that we then were able to measure over time, then the, the, the use of 911. So I think it's a very important point that you need to work out who isn't calling, not so much who is calling, but actually do the kind of the reverse of measurement and to see who isn't calling and then target it down. And we did exactly that. I commend you for doing that. One of the other areas that we discovered from the research we did, the the reluctance of the African-American population to engage in CPR, particularly when you've got the call taker trying to encourage them to do CPR. And again, that that then led us back into a lot more concentrated CPR classes. So I think using a public health and and community outreach is clearly the solution here. And you've obviously identified that. I think that um, also in that uh, the pre-arrival component um, within our discussion, we talk about some ways to address some of these barriers. One of the findings from our um, research was that uh, a lot of the papers talked about barriers that existed or talked about disparities that existed, but very few of them focused on actual tools to mitigate these barriers or tools that can be used to mitigate um, the, the disparities that we were seeing. Um, but we... Um, we were able to um, tease out a couple of things that may be leading to some of these issues um, and provide a little bit of, uh, you know, a bit of a takeaway for people to walk away and, and, and think about and maybe apply to their EMS system. Um, so, for example, the racial and ethnic minorities that are less likely to recognize the symptoms, that provides a space for culturally competent education and focused education for that community, particularly given, given um, that there's a disproportionate burden of disease amongst that community and deaf due to heart disease, stroke, and et cetera. Um, and those barriers to activating 911, um, being mistrust in the system, and then language barriers, EMS could probably do... Um, you know, or work to build trust through increased education and outreach to diverse populations um, by, you know, arriving and, you know, um, engaging with the community outside of those high stressful situations where people are calling 911. Um, And then truly trying to emphasize that lack of ties to immigration um, services. And then lastly, uh, women were uh, less likely to uh, have an AED applied. When we looked at um, men and Prior research or prior data has shown that maybe there's a bit of a fear 
um, that uh, you'd be accused of inappropriate touching or sexual assault to expose a female's breasts or ex- expose a female's chest uh, to provide chest compressions and, and uh, apply that AED. So there's an opportunity there for us to change the way that we're teaching and change maybe some of our literature, um, some of our um, signage um, when we're teaching to go ahead and say, hey, this will be uncomfortable. Address that straight on um, to boost the amount of females that are getting AEDs applied. Those were excellent responses. We've become really good, particularly in EMS, at describing the problems, but not so much getting around to defining the solutions. And I think you've just given us a, an excellent roadmap and, and certainly, you know, exposing the chest in a, in a female um, CPR patient. You know, we always have those two frequently asked questions. And one is, am I going to get sued? And the second question is, what happens if I break somebody's ribs? And this is the point I normally bring a survivor up and say, what would you rather be, alive or have a broken rib? And the answer, of course, is a broken rib. But perhaps we need to get over the, the 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 stigma or the embarrassment or the reluctance, as you say, to deliver appropriate and proper CPR to to the female population. So I mean that's that's a good point and probably probably a good takeaway. Thank you for highlighting that. Access to care, barriers to care. Take us a bit further into the kind of you know into the journey of the research here. Some of the things that came up when we were looking at diagnosis, treatment, kind of you know response and transport. The more direct, hands-on EMS provider. Um, related care are uh, there's a lot of disparities in analgesia administration. And we have seen multiple studies looking at this in the emergency department and the hospital, et cetera. But we did find that there was a bit of evidence that that was happening in the pre-hospital realm as well. Um, and it was really, we were thinking sort of an identifying of potential unconscious or implicit biases and making providers or EMS clinicians, you know, aware of those biases. And that could be potentially done with some you know, medical direction or EMS leadership training and bias training and all that. Other things we found were that female patients, for example, had longer on-scene and transport times. We don't really have a good idea why that's happening in things like uh, ACS or other complaints. So we didn't really have a good suggestion for that, but it was something that interestingly came up and we wanted to highlight as well. Perhaps that needs further research. And of course, maybe one of the questions is, is is the treating medic male or female? How, how do those things interact with each other, female treating male, male treating female, etc.? And so just to understand you know, that and implicit bias. I mean, I know many, many police departments that spend a lot of time educating their officers into implicit bias because, of course, they are the ones that, let's be honest, are most often accused of that in their in their daily treatment. But perhaps we don't do enough in the EMS pre-hospital world. And, and, and perhaps that's another takeaway. We need to develop those classes. And uh, if my medical director, my Dorset was on, she would be all over this as well. And, and, and that's the same. We need to work very, very hard at this. You know, are there any kind of classes or, or go-to places we can go to to get more, more education and training on implicit bias that you found? That's a great question. Um, so as you know, NHTSA updated the National EMS Education Standards last year, and they included cultural humility and you know, um, unconscious bias as part of that education. Um, but there was no framework provided with that as to how to teach that to our, you know, students or our providers. Like right now, I'm leading an unconscious bias course for Chicago Fire Department, something that's homegrown, but um, right now trying to measure its effectiveness. But that's without actually having, you know, like a tool set or anything that's uh, recommended nationally. So it would be great if um, we could come together and maybe come up with a, some type of tool that we can use to teach this to our providers in a way that's productive, in a way that, you know, the takeaway is there um, and the message is well received and it impacts patient care. 
Uh, but right now, I don't think that there is a, a good framework or a, a good model uh, from a national standpoint that can be utilized um, in different EMS agencies throughout you know, the United States. Well, perhaps this is a challenge to you guys or a challenge to others that for things like NAMSP and for Expo, you know, this sounds like a pre-con in the making here and uh, getting that training together and actually creating those classes, whether it's train the trainer or whether it's just explaining how we need to go about this education. Takeaway number one, perhaps you've identified the gap in the market here and we need perhaps to develop these things because, as I say, cops do it a lot because of the, the environment they're in. We're behind the curve here and uh, we need to perhaps uh, develop something. So for your next for your next piece of work, That's when you right. come back, you will have the <laughs> class ready and we can then be, be delivering it, right? A reality of EMS operations at the moment is recruitment and retention. And, uh, you know, we're having trouble recruiting people. We are certainly having trouble retaining people. What everyone should seek to be doing is to have the workforce that mirrors their population at large, at risk. And I think there's a connectivity there between who you, the breakdown of your own sort of ethnic diverse workforce and the population that you serve, Andrew. Yes, and some evidence in more different clinical scenarios like hospitals and such have shown that having a workforce that's representative of the population that the workforce serves can decrease these barriers and uh, improve patient outcomes and have more or have fewer disparities in care, excuse me. So I think one of the ways we could go about this is to have a more representative EMS workforce uh, of the diversity in the U.S. population, which kind of segues into our other paper. And we'll talk about that other paper in a second. But first, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioural health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. Welcome back. Yeah, after the quick break there, um, we're talking research. Uh, we talked about paper number one. Obviously, we've established a few good takeaways and to-dos. Moving on to paper number two, Jordan. So as Andra was alluding to, there's a lot of the work we've done in terms of looking at disparities in care also begs the question of what does our workforce look like? What is the experience of people of different backgrounds within our workforce? And what are we doing to make sure that our workforce does represent and continues to, and we maintain the representation of our the communities in which we work within our workforce. So similarly, we also conducted a scoping review to look at what, what data existed on the demographics of the workforce, the recruitment, the retention, and workplace experience of people from diverse backgrounds, whether that was gender, race, ethnicity, uh, or sexual orientation. And so we ended up looking at 87 papers in total, looked mostly at demographics, issues within recruitment and retention, like education, testing, pay, and then workforce experiences, whether that was mental health, workplace violence, workplace harassment, and things of that nature. 
I mean, this is really topical because all of the things you just listed are the, are the reasons why people either go to work for a company or leave a company. And, you know, we know because of the pandemic, and, and again, I would imagine a lot of the research papers were BC before COVID. And so we have to perhaps factor in some of the, the realities that have hit us since COVID, of course, where people, you know, if you're a, a lot of volunteer rescue squads just gave up and went home, a lot of people realize I'm too, getting too old for this or I don't want to deal with this anymore. The issue of salary and pay has come back into the into the fore uh, in a big way now because, of course, it's become almost a, dare I say, a buyer's market. It's it's the employee now, you know, looking for more money. And of course, we know we've got the midterms coming up and we've got to, don't want to get political on you all, but the midterms are coming up. You know, there may well be a change in the administration uh, of, of the House and the Senate, which may actually affect how we're reimbursed even. And so it's all topical stuff and really relatable to what you've just researched. But uh, what did you find? So I think an important place to start is sort of where does the workforce exist? Or as you said, at least before prior to COVID, where did the workforce exist in terms of diversity and representation? And the the data that we have, and I'll give the caveat that not all of the the data is within the last couple of years. Some of this data is, you know, up to 10 years old or more, but the data that we do have uh, is not particularly impressive in terms of workforce diversity. A lot of the data comes from national data sets, national registry data sets. And those show that Within the EMT workforce, somewhere around 30% of the workforce is female or identifies as female. Within the paramedic workforce, it's a little bit lower, somewhere from like 20 to 35%. And then in terms of race and ethnicity, in terms of the EMT workforce, uh, it's improved over the last 20 years, but about a third of the workforce in 2017 identified as non-white. And when you break that down for paramedics, it's again lower, uh, somewhere around 20% identify as non-white. If you break down race and ethnicity even further, um, those numbers get even smaller. For example, EMS clinicians identifying as as black within the 2010s was about 5% of EMTs and 3% of paramedics. And you can imagine for many populations, that's grossly underrepresentative of the folks that they're actually serving in those communities. This is about to be the obvious question, but uh, in the first half, we identified the, the problems. We very elegantly came up with some suggested solutions. What's the answer to this one? So I think that the solution to this problem is multifactorial, so it's not going to be an easy fix. And EMS is not the only industry that is uh, confronted with this problem. Uh, all sectors of healthcare uh, have demonstrated a lack of diversity and have um, many of them have committed to increasing the diversity of their workforce. I think one of the positives that we found with this scoping review is that there are programs that have been developed specifically to recruit a diverse and representative workforce. However, one of the issues with these programs is that we don't really have any systematic evaluations of the effectiveness of these programs. So we have reports that they are successful, um, but there is no sort of blueprint to provide to other systems that may want to replicate the program and create their own type of you know, pipeline program or diverse recruitment program. I think that provides a great opportunity. As we talked about sort of the the diversity individuality of EMS systems out there, that's a great opportunity for folks who do have programs like that to report on their work and, and talk about their experiences with those programs. And I think that's uh, something that people listening to this, if they have that kind of program, should really um, consider sharing their experiences. 
Well, that's yet conference opportunity number two. Again, if you're listening and you are conducting these programs, clearly we want to hear about them because we're looking for exemplar and best practice. So if you're, whether it's a, an NMSP or whether it's an expo or whether it's a pinnacle, let me know. I know the, I know a few people that might be able to connect you up, but obviously we want to hear uh, about the programs that you're uh, undertaking. I think another area where we found some some evidence or lack of evidence that may point to drivers of this, this lack of, of representativeness within the workforce is that we really have no idea what the leadership structure of EMS systems is in terms of gender, in terms of ethnicity or race, in terms of sexual orientation. There's virtually no published data out there, although there's been a lot discussed within the media, you know, on sites like EMS One or on sites EMS World and places like that about, you know, this department hired their first female fire chief or this department hired their first whomever who identifies as gay, that, that it really no one has actually uh, published any data on that at all. And so um, we just don't know what people, what people's experiences are like coming into these workforces, who are their bosses. And um, based on the, the news reporting around that, it, we would probably hypothesize that, that, that the lack of diversity is even more pronounced at the leadership levels. I think I agree with you. And uh, although I'm excited to see a lot of our national associations are certainly, you know, becoming more representative, dare I say, you know, the middle-aged white man club that uh, perhaps, uh, and I, I may bleep myself out there a little bit later, but uh, I, I sincerely mean that though, that we are starting to show the cross-section of the society that we are. But that said, of course, you know, we can't just add water and create, remember, 15,000 EMS systems. We can't develop 15,000 diverse EMS chiefs overnight. And so, therefore, there has to be a roadmap, there has to be a plan, and there has to be a route to to achieve this. And uh, clearly, from what you're saying is, you know, we, we can't even measure the baseline yet. Uh, and, and obviously, that's something that we need to work on. I think one of the issues with maintaining a diverse um, leadership pool is really retention. And that's one of the issues that our paper highlighted as well. So we noted that retention among non-white personnel and females or female gender um, is really um, challenging. So, um, you know, some of the reasons that we determined for um, lack of retention among these personnel um, are very specific and, and um, actionable items that EMS agencies can work on. So one is uh, looking, evaluating your, your pay, um, making sure that there's parity among your um, the uh, different genders and ethnicities and races and making sure that your pay is Equal. I think one of the findings from our study um, found that EMS female EMS professionals earned between four and fifteen thousand dollars less annually than males, and this was kind of more pronounced at the EMT level compared to the paramedic level. Um, we didn't really find um, significant data on uh, race disparities in pay, but we didn't really have enough data on this, so it's kind of challenging to come to a significant conclusion about that. Um, the other uh, potential driver of attrition that we found was um, limited opportunities for advancement in female personnel and non-white personnel. And then um, more specifically to kind of speaking about the culture is the workplace environment. Um, so especially when it comes to um, safety, harassment, and violence um, being of specific concern for these personnel. Just to add some numbers to what what Anjani was just discussing, I think one of the things that was really uh, surprising to me, and this uh, belies my own experience as you know, a man in the world, but um, 
seeing just how prevalent sexual harassment was at, in the, among the limited number of studies that had examined it. Um, most of these were limited to, to studies of firefighters, but um, sexual harassment seems to be highly prevalent uh, in the EMS workforce in the studies that we reviewed. And, you know, studies from the 1990s showed rates as high as, as 80% of, of, of women personnel experiencing sexual harassment. And more recently, like one of the largest studies, uh, again, among firefighters, showed about 40% uh, of women personnel experienced some form of sexual harassment. And similarly, that was also held true among female EMS physicians. So it's not just limited by uh, the setting. And so I think that um, while it's hard to prove, you know, hard to, to draw a direct connection in, within a review between retention and workplace experience, I think uh, logic would kind of hold that if, if you know, almost half of uh, women personnel within our industry are experiencing sexual harassment at work, that that would be one driver of not wanting to come back and keep working in that work environment. And to add to Jordan's point, the majority of these studies were from fire-based EMS systems. So we excluded any um, studies that focused solely on um, uh, fire only, and we only focused on those those fire services that also provided EMS care. But it shows that there's a huge gap in data among EMS systems, which don't provide any sort of fire suppression activities. And so that's definitely an opportunity for us to investigate more into the EMS workforce and determine if there are issues that are um, driving attrition. Well, it sounds like that there's still a lot to do. I just want to come back to, uh, uh, Angeline, the first thing you said in this segment about uh, pay. And here in California, on the 1st of January, the law changes that you must, by law, advertise the rate of pay that goes with any recruitment that you're doing. And I think that's the first step in the right direction that, you know, you can then start to assess, you know, the relative worth of a post. Um, and, you know, and so you're paying for the post, not necessarily the person. In other words, you know, it's equitable pay for the job that you're doing, not the gender that you are. So I think that's a, that's a great step uh, in the right direction. And hopefully others will uh, follow California. You've kind of described the lack of private ambulance service data here, and that's that's you know fire-based EMS, and then and then there's the rest, and so there's an opportunity um, perhaps to explore that. But you know you've already started to highlight the fact that we need to do something, and that something is that we know when people do exit surveys, they're leaving because of their supervisor and their leader. All right. Sometimes it's not just job dissatisfaction as in the clinical work. It's the being led work that needs sourcing out. And I think that's another you know, takeaway and to do that. I noticed that uh, certainly at Expo, I just came back from Expo in Orlando, a lot more focus on leadership and actually that kind of supervisor level leadership, which is the, the, the critical level that keeps and retains people uh, if you get it right. In my own view on supervisor training is we, we are guilty of the Peter principle. We take these people that are great medics and we say, here, have a badge, have a pip, have a, have a bar. And now you're a supervisor, and then we promote you to a level of incompetence. We're all guilty of that, and we need to fix that because if we can fix the leadership bit, then, of course, we may be able to improve the lot of the workforce, you know, no matter their diversity, because it's about good leaders leading well. And we sometimes just don't equip people to do that. And so clearly you're giving us more of a more evidence to, to actually branch off in, in that direction as well. I think not only uh, developing good leaders, but also mentoring good leaders is important. And that is uh, particularly important in personnel who come from diverse backgrounds, because um, mentorship for 
for someone from a diverse background who, uh, from, from a mentor that understands where they come from is really important because um, they have to be able to relate to the specific challenges that they face. And that can often be hard to find. I agree totally. And uh, again, NAMT, for example, have just created what they call the Lighthouse uh, Project, where they are taking up and coming leaders and pairing them up with established uh, managers and, 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 you know, more senior, more experienced folk to create that mentorship program. Now, of course, it doesn't have to be restricted to a national association. It should be happening at every organization around the country. And so, again, you know, we're full of takeaways on this podcast today. So, you know, if, you, if you're not mentoring, you know, the new you, if you're not mentoring the new me, you need to be up there and preparing the next generation um, to come in and take over to lead and to lead well. Of these two papers, where are we in the publication sort of uh, stakes? So our workforce diversity paper has already been published in PEC, and we will be making that open access. So it should be available to anyone, regardless of whether you have a subscription to pre-hospital emergency care or not. The second manuscript is, I'll let Andrew talk about that. (laughs) The patient care manuscript has received its first round of reviewer comments and we're hoping that we can send those back and publish after that. That's great. And you, you gave me a, you know, a, a sneak preview of some of this stuff. And, and obviously, the references and the examples that, that you have identified and uncovered are, dare I say, salutary lessons to why we should be paying attention to this. Um, and we can't uh, ignore the fact that we have to fix this in order to get us back up to where we were, which is you know, fully staffed and fully functional and, you know, that's something that uh, we, we haven't been for a long time and it's work that we need to do. Is there anything that I haven't asked you or that you haven't told me that you want to you wanna let me know about? So I think the takeaway for our workforce scoping review is that we all should be providing high quality, equitable care. I think that's everyone's goal in the space of EMS. Um, however, there are some identifiable health disparities that exist. That's what the literature shows us. Um, And while we're looking at that literature, there are also gaps in our knowledge due to a lack of research. So, for example, gender identities outside of male and female weren't really explored. Sexual orientation wasn't explored deeply. There was only one article that addressed that. And many medical conditions weren't investigated outside of ACS, stroke, and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Very few, if any, focus on trauma, diabetic problems, seizures, mental health emergencies, etc. And that provides a grand opportunity for all of us um, for future areas of research. Um, And again, like I mentioned before, few studies explore the mitigation of the disparities. So future research should not only elucidate further disparities, but also focus on mechanisms to eliminate them. Lastly, I think this paper um, is a huge call to action for all of us within the space of EMS to evaluate our own EMS systems to determine if if health disparities exist within them and implement changes to mitigate them. I think one of the interesting findings from our study also, so we mapped out uh, when in time these papers were published that we found, and the majority of manuscripts were actually published within the last decade. So this is certainly um, becoming a more important topic and more recognized in not only the scientific literature, but also um, in general. And so um, I think anything that we can do to kind of highlight the importance of this topic um, is going to really help in pushing the field even further. 
Absolutely. And uh, again, just a, a note from Dr. Emily Crow um, that uh, these projects, and I'm quoting her directly now, these projects were born out of the NAMSP Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee. And the key point to highlight is that this group is not just for physicians, but for professional members. And so the call out is if you want to be involved, get involved and actually uh, take part in this, join up and uh, and, and be a part of it. Um I think we've actually, when I go back and think about the bluff, right, the bottom lines up front, you've actually given me maybe eight or nine takeaways here that people should be thinking about and actioning, which I thank you all for. Um, and uh, perhaps we can come back and, and, and talk some more at another time. But uh, for the moment, how can we follow you guys and get in touch with you? I think because my Gmail address has far too many components, it's my entire name. Twitter might be a better way. And my Twitter handle is Andra MF. So you can follow me uh, on my Twitter handle. It's at Anjani Joiner. And I know that's a bit of a mouthful, so I'll spell it out for you. It's A-N-J-N-I-J-O-I-N-E-R. My Twitter handle is at Hamid the MD. That's H-2-A-S-M-I-D the MD. So H-A-A-M-I-D the MD. And then you can you can find me on Twitter at jrudmanmd. That's J R U D M A N M D. Excellent. And so when this comes out, we will make sure that uh, we are spreading you all around the uh, the Twitter sphere, and uh, we'll get some some great attention to this. Um, so, guys, thank you so much for spending the time with me and uh, giving me the headlines. As I say we've developed some, or you've developed some actually some great takeaways, and uh, you've defined the problem, which is fantastic but actually you've given me some great takeaways of solutions and that's what we need to be doing right now so thank you for that don't forget you can follow me on twitter at ukrobl1 ukrobl1 uh, or over on linkedin and so i'd like to thank my guests uh, on this uh, week's podcast i've been rob lawrence this has been ems one stop and until next time bye for now 